2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, and with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comfort us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Word of the Lord. Morning. We begin this morning, book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We will take a brief break over Easter to talk about something else, but but we will, for a while, for a number of weeks, uh, with the exception of Easter and probably Palm Sunday, be in 2 Corinthians, though I may end up weaving some things in. Um, This is an interesting uh, book, as I've read through and as I've been doing a lot of study over the few weeks, um, you know, the main theme of this book is why God is still God in the midst of suffering. And I wonder, after just finishing Job, Lord, what are you doing with us right here, right now? So, don't know, but it's very interesting how the themes of those two books, we're going to see them parallel each other. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but uh, for those of you who haven't, I, um, I served in uh, a church uh, Nancy and I did for a number of years uh, before I was ordained in the EPC, served in worship leading capacity in youth. And uh, a, it's a wonderful church. So many of the things that our living hope is founded upon, we learned through that church body, but they weren't perfect. And uh, we had a situation arise after we'd been there for a few years where there was a group of people who felt the altar rail uh, was an Episcopal church, and they had an altar rail, and some people felt that rail should be removed, and there were other people who felt it shouldn't be removed. So the reasons why are irrelevant, as in most things like this, but uh, things began to get heated, and things began to get, um, factions began to form over who would do what with what. And it culminated one Sunday as I was doing the closing worship, I still to this day remember the song, the little chorus went, you can feel the love of God in this place, and went on. Every time the narthex doors would swing open during the final door, I could hear the screaming coming from the narthex as the 
one lady who was trying to pass around the, I don't know, save the altar rail petition was getting yelled at by the leader who was saying, this is inappropriate. And then the language and I thought truly a fight or a hockey game was going to break out in the narthex as I'm singing, I can feel the love of God in this place. And I'm thinking, I don't feel it right now. I don't feel it right now. You know, every Sunday, just about as we speak the words of the creed, the Apostles' Creed, we do something kind of interesting. The word creed is from the Latin credo. It means I believe. And we start it by saying I believe in God the Father Almighty. We don't say the word I believe again until the very back end of the creed. We say I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We all know that's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's the one church, universal church. But are there people who don't believe in the church? You know, we say, I believe in the church. Well, I know there are people who don't believe in God or in Jesus Christ as divine or in the Holy Spirit. But are there people who don't believe in the church? We say, I believe in the church. Can I tell you, yeah, I think there are. G.K. Chesterton famously said the most consistent argument against Christianity as Christians is that you will... Don't have to go very far in our society to find someone who says, oh, yeah, God, I don't, I don't have any problem believing in God, but, man, don't get me in organized religion, right? I've been hurt by that, or I've had a negative experience. So so the church, I, I mean, I don't need the church. It's Jesus and me. Or just Well, that's not really an option scripturally, but we we say in the creed, I believe in something here in the church. And I can tell you, standing up there leading worship on that Sunday where the fight's breaking out and back, I'm thinking, do I believe in the church? Second Corinthians is, is a book about a church with a history. And it's a, it's a church where many, many lives were changed and good things were happening, but it was also a troubled church. And Paul has a long-term relationship with this church. And I've got uh, a little help here because to understand this book, we've got to put in context. I am going to take a minute this morning, a few minutes this morning, and set up what was happening and why it matters, what Paul was doing here. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Acts chapter 18. We're going to read a few verses up there. It'll be up on the screen as well. But here is the founding of the church at Corinth. Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Prisca or Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. First thing to note, the, the persecution of Jews, they were being thrust out of Rome, and so they had to land somewhere. So some of them had landed in Corinth. Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, tent maker, he stayed with them and worked. They were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, 
the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. All right, so the founding of Corinth. We're at about A.D. 50, just to give you historians where, where we are. We know that by who the proconsul who was ruling at the time that's mentioned in there. And so Paul is in his second missionary journey. He, is, you know, he starts here in, on the road to Damascus. We have a many, many years where Paul is out in the wilderness. We don't know where he is. Then he begins to come up here, what's present-day Turkey and in Greece, and he's... The, there were, not called that at those names then, but he's sorry for those of you over here who can't see or Facebook people. I know I'm blocking you. So he's traveling up here on foot and sailing over here. And during his second missionary journey, we learn that he's been in Athens, which is over here. And he goes over to Corinth and he spends 18 months there. And he's, he raises up a church. He founds a church. Paul's pattern at this point is to go into synagogues to reason with people and just to present. He was a very smart guy, right? Trained as a Pharisee, knew the word of God. And he was now completely converted, having had experienced the presence of Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he's going, and his pattern is to go synagogue to synagogue, going in and explaining to people why Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the, the one they're waiting for. And so he gets there to Corinth, and he spends 18 months, places where he found there was fruit. He tends to, seems like he tends to stay a little bit longer there. And so then it says he leaves uh, after 18 months, and he's met Pris- the two leaders of the church, Priscilla and Aquila. We don't know if they got saved through Paul's ministry or not, but they they had become leaders in the church there. And so then they go out, right, probably as missionaries from this body. And uh, so in 51, he sails over. So it takes, you know, maybe a week or, or more to sail over to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. And they, from here, Paul moves on to Antioch. So he's there. Priscilla and Aquila train Apollos, who goes back because heresies are already beginning to rise up in Corinth, and somebody has to teach them the truth. So Apollos begins to go back over. This is all in Acts 18. He goes back over and begins to uh, talk to them. So Paul gets reports over in Antioch that, man, the Corinthians are really struggling. They're not doing well. So he writes them a letter. We don't have that letter, but it's referred to in the letter we know as 1 Corinthians. And he sends them a letter saying, guys, you got to straighten up. And uh, so the, the Corinthians apparently didn't. And so he ends up, uh, they end up sending teams of people, uh, two different teams, end up with Paul. And he, they say, look, we've got people, doctrinal divisions, we have people fighting over who's an apostle of Peter, who's an apostle of Paul, who's an apostle of this person. We've got people coming to the communion, you know, taking communion meal together, and they're just getting flat out drunk uh, during there. We have a, a guy who's uh, in a relationship with his stepmother, and w- people are saying, oh, we're, we're just filled with, we're non-judgmental, and we're filled with grace, and, and, and Paul, whoa, hold on. So he writes 1 Corinthians, the second letter back here, it's sent back to, um, to, to Corinth, and 1 Corinthians is filled with corrections of all these kind of things. And so 
uh, word comes back that there's, um, you know, they, they've received the letter, but still there are some problems going on. So by this point, remember it's founded in 50, uh, in 52, he's uh, written 1 Corinthians and, and sends, or 54 rather, he's written 1 Corinthians and sends it. And later in 54, he makes another trek back. This is probably a month to get from Antioch all the way back to Corinth, and he makes a trek back. And let's just say the visit doesn't go well. Okay. He's there with them, and he references this visit, and he says, because there's a guy in the church there who has become very powerful, and he is either the one in immorality or somehow related to him, and he's just making a mess of the church. And so it is a very painful visit because this guy is saying, you can't trust Paul. He's not a real apostle. Look at what a mess this guy's life is. He's suffering. He's got so many problems in his life, so many things going wrong with him. He gets beaten and jailed, and this isn't what Christians are. Look at me. I'm the kind of Christian leader you want to follow. So Paul leaves that, and he writes a third letter. That's why I say it's a church with a history. A third letter that we don't have anymore. It's called the severe letter or the painful letter. Paul lets him have it, right? You ever written one of those letters or received one of those letters? He just let him have it, basically. And I, there was a sense of, look, you're coming apart at the seams here, and you know, so you know, here's you come to Jesus, and so he ends up from his other time, he ends up back in here, and you know, interestingly enough, if you find when people are sailing and writing, he's trying to meet up with other of these. Um, uh, Silas and Apollos and people he's with, and he can't find them. It says, I, I went there for Troas and went to meet, find Silas. I couldn't find him in the city. You know, it wasn't email. It wasn't like you could call. And so he's wondering how they received this news. Of course, he's written this painful letter to them. And finally, they meet up back in Macedonia, and he gets news, hey, Almost everybody in the church has received it well. So well, as a matter of fact, that you should see what they're doing to the guy who was raised up against you. I mean, they are giving it to him. You know, sort of tar and feathering idea. I mean, they are they are laying into him now. So Paul's glad, but oh, whoa, 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 whoa. So he's trying to write back, and he writes this letter of 2 Corinthians after hearing what they've done here. It's still a church that's... You know, you'd think almost Paul's like, you are, y'all are just not worth the trouble. Y'all have things that's like clients, so all y'all have clients. Do y'all have clients that you think, could you please go to one of the competitors? Like, I would, you know, do you know that? Wouldn't you like, wouldn't you love to go, like, I, you know, I have a church for you that would just be awesome. You know, you would love that. You know, and I think I would have thought, look, Corinthians, there is another person to kind of run your, you know, help you. I, I got a guy over here. But no, Paul is invested. And he writes this letter so glad to hear that they've responded to the severe letter. But this is a city pivotally located. And, and Leah's brilliant drawing here, which she did, it's very to scale, by the way, it's amazing. Um, there's a little 
what we call an isthmus. Can you say that word with me? Isthmus, right? It's a little land bridge of five miles across here. So this is a really tough sail around here. It takes a week or two, and there's really bad storms here. But if you sail into the Gulf of Corinth and come out this gulf, it's not only very much shorter, but also much safer. But they had to figure out how to get across the five-mile isthmus. So if you go there, it's an amazing thing. They basically pulled the boats up onto the beach. They put them on wheels, and they had a little track. And for X amount of money, you would get pulled across by about 50 guys would pull you. You can you can see like a reenactment of it on, on YouTube or whatever. They'd pull you across basically like on a skateboard with a ship on it, any size ship. They'd pull you across the five miles. You could do it in a full day. So all the sailors would come into Isthmus, to, to, to Corinth, which is right there, and they would do what sailors do on leave. Sorry, Navy. They, it was... It was a town known to everything goes. To be Corinthian, according to Aristophanes, is to live the wildlife. And so this town, about 90,000 people, became a center for, and this is the way it's characterized in a, a book um, by Tim Savage uh, about Corinth called uh, Power Through Weakness. He said it was a city of pleasure. It was a tribute to the human-made grandeur and splendor to assertiveness and pride. What marked Corinth was this. They valued rugged individualism with wealth as the main indicator of status and an emphasis on upward mobility. Sound like any cultures you know? Religious participation was seen as mostly being about what it did for you now, the current peace and protection in this life, Popular speakers of the religious persuasion built followings that were not based on their doctrine, but based on their powerful and entertaining delivery. What goes around comes around, huh? For them, true spiritual maturity was measured in outside success financially, in the influence you had, and in your spiritual experience, it was for knowledge of the Spirit by inside information and manifesting the gifts of the Spirit for their own sake. That was Corinth, religiously and as a culture. And into this culture, Paul comes preaching a gospel of sacrifice, of suffering, and the cross. No wonder it's not that well received. Let's say I said last week, next week I say, you're going to have a guest speaker here next week. Um, this will tell him like Bob Smith or whatever. Uh, but, you know, Bob's um, last five years, Bob's been the, the focal point of a number of riots. He's, he's been arrested a bunch of times for disturbing the peace. Um, Bob's uh, had a lot of difficulties. Um, he told me last time that he'd prefer to die rather than to continue on with his ministry. Bob's itinerary uh, continues to change because his travel plans keep falling apart because of weather and other things. Uh, Bob's often sick, so he can't be here, but he, we hope he'll be well enough to be here next week. Bob's typically hungry, so bring a lot of food for the potluck. Bob has a hard time paying his bills, typically can't do it, so if anybody has extra jobs for him to work through while he's here, so um, Bob will be preaching on the victorious Christian life, how I can live it, <laughs> just like Bob, right? That was Paul's, we're, we're talking about Paul, right? And so, no wonder he's easy bait and easy target for the people of Corinth to say, what kind of Christian do you want to be following? This guy's falling apart. You know, uh, we don't know how he's going to make it here. Paul begins this letter, if you open please to verse 1, chapter 1, it's not a throwaway line. Paul says this, 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle. He uses this word. The question is, how many apostles are there? Trick question. Apostle Big A, there were 12, right? There were 12 for a number of reasons. I won't spend a long time going through it, but there are 12 tribes of Israel, each of the apostles. They, there's the symbolism in that. But Paul makes a uh, kind of, you know, we, we find a very startling thing. If you got your Bible, you can turn back a page or two to First First Corinthians fifteen nine. One of the ways that you knew you were an apostle was that you saw Jesus, you were taught by Jesus, and you were sent by Jesus. Apostle means sent one. And so, beginning of verse eight, fifteen, First Corinthians fifteen eight, he says. Uh, well, we'll even start with seven. He says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. That is, he wasn't born during the time, you know, with all the other twelve. He says, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul is the 13th apostle. Who, to whom is the apostle of? To the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Okay? Twelve tribes of Israel for the other twelve. Not that they each went to one of the twelve tribes, but symbolically they're uh, related to that. And he is sent out right, as an apostle. So the question becomes, as this guy in Corinth, and as he's being challenged, is whether he's really an apostle or not. We go back to when Paul's conversion was. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Paul has been brought to Ananias after he's been struck down by the Lord, by the Lord Jesus. The Lord's appeared to him and spoken to him. And in Acts 9, 15, here's what it says. The Lord said to him, Go... For he, this is uh, the Lord speaking to Ananias about Paul, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And then look at 16. For I will show him, what? How much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, if I were writing this, and I were going to do like a promo piece for being my messenger, I'm not sure I would put, I'm going to make you my messenger of this grand and glorious thing. I would say you're going to change the world because you know, that's inspirational, right? You are going to make a difference. He said, I've got to get a hold of him to show him what it's going to cost him. So what's at stake for Paul is not his reputation here. It's not, those guys, I founded their church and they're like not all respectful. What's at stake is Jesus Christ's call and the reality of what Paul has experienced because if he says, fine, just go follow that guy, then he's basically left his sheep, his lambs to the wolf. And Paul's not willing to do that. Scholars say that the church at Corinth at the time could have been as small as 50 people. They found records of four house churches which could have housed somewhere 
10 to 15 people. Now, others think it's probably many more. The entire church of Corinth, they think the largest it could have been would have been about this size, 150 to 200. I don't know what you think of when you think of the church at Corinth writing letters to the Corinthians, megachurch or hundreds of house churches, but this is a, a, a Christianity is, remember, you're getting thrown out of Rome for being a Christian at this point. We are just at the front end of being tossed to lions. It's not like the marketing department for Christianity was like going great guns. Become a Christian, get eaten. Right? It doesn't, I mean, it's not, but what was happening is people's lives were being changed. And they were watching people care for the poor. And they were watching in a sexually promiscuous environment people saying, oh, I'm going to not be like that. And all of a sudden, they were influencing their culture not through politics, of which they had no power. They were influencing it because the Spirit of Jesus Christ was filling them, and the Holy Spirit was then just going crazy Still a hard sell, but all of a sudden it was transformed lives, not PR. So Paul says, as he begins, we're back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 now. He says that we're going to now learn, guys, that when Jesus called me to suffer, I said yes. And when this person says, this guy's not really an apostle because apostles should be on top of the world, not suffering, says he's got it all backwards. Because you look at the model, who's the model? Jesus. And Jesus was a man of sorrows. And Jesus was a man who laid down his life and said, greater love has no one than this. He lays down his life for his friends, for his brothers. So he starts his letter after the greeting. Achaia is the region here of which Corinth was the uh, capital area at the time. And as he greets all the brethren in here, but focusing on Corinth, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and of comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he starts with this. He starts saying, okay, Corinthians, you've received my letter. You've you've still got issues here. But don't think that when you're under it, Don't think that when things are rough, God has left you. As a matter of fact, this is a tremendous opportunity. Comfort in this way, we don't typically use the word in this way, but comfort would really be defined as the ability to rest in God's goodness and His rule. The ability to rest in God's goodness and His rule even when circumstances are challenging, difficult, terrible, whatever you want to say. Sound Job-like to anybody? How can I rest when things aren't going as they are and still know that God is with me? Comfort is not platitudes. It's not saying, oh, that's too bad. I don't know. When you say something, well, I, I really want to go comfort them, I think we sort of think of putting your arm around their shoulder and saying, it'll get better. You'll get through it. Well, that's part of it. It's not a bad thing to say. 
But here's what Paul says. He says, look, you have this gift of affliction because, why? The God of all comfort is going to come and comfort you in your affliction. Now, I always used to think that because you went through a specific trial, something really hard, that that sort of would be your, oh, well, now I can comfort somebody who's going through that same thing. I've lost my job. I, I know what it feels like. You know, I, I know. I've, I've been there. I've lost my job. First of all, never say to anyone at any time, I know how you feel. Even if you've been through the same situation, because you aren't the same person. You don't know how they feel, right? That's not comfort. But comfort is what? Is reminding people that they have the ability to rest in a good God and rest in His rule in any affliction they're going through. And I know you think, gosh, who am I to say that? Well, this is where we stand on God's Word. Because it says, look at what it says. In verse 4, so that He comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Not the exact same affliction that you went through. Because the point is to say, well, as a human, I understand humanly what you've been through. It's to say, Jesus Christ understands because he was tempted in every way as we were. Y'all are wonderful, and it's great to think, you know, I, you know, boy, you've been through it, that's great. But you're not as wonderful as God. And the fact that he's been through it matters a whole bunch more than that you've been through it. So if we're counseling, if we're coming alongside, if we're being friends to people, as Christians, we want to point them to the fact that Jesus knows. Hebrews 4.15 right, and 16 says, Yes, I understand that afflictions happen, but here's as, as I close, here are the three things I want you to sort of remember and point out. If you haven't been comforted in your affliction by God, don't offer it to anyone else. If you are just it, when, when things happen in your life and you haven't yet learned how to cling on to God and to receive from Him that He stills good and He still loves you in the midst of when things are really bad, it's a difficult thing. It's not an easy thing. But it's a platitude for us to say it if you haven't walked it. But when you've walked through and say, you know what, there are times in my marriage that have been really, really hard, or there have been times in my work life or times in my spiritual life that have been really dark, but God's been good, and He's been there, and He's seen me through the other side, and He'll see you through your other side, then you can comfort, and you can point them to the one who is comfort. Verse 9, last point this morning, verse 9 of chapter 1, he says this, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how bad Paul's affliction was. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So first, do you find Jesus in the midst of your suffering and affliction? Do you find God there? Second, we can then experience His comfort in there and connect others who are struggling with that and connect each other, be that pointer to Jesus as well as Jesus with skin on 
to take them, but also to tell them, as it says in verse 9, to make us rely not on ourselves, because God is perfectly capable of anything, raising the dead if he chooses to. And for us to point them, we begin to become, and the Corinthians are beginning to become a church that we can believe in. Because when we say, I believe in one church, it needs to be a church that points to the head of the church. Not enough just to say, because this is the same church that said, everybody's an eye, everybody's a hand, everybody's a foot. And they were all getting off the mark because they didn't understand that the church is together to point people to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word as we begin to delve in to this book of 2 Corinthians, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, as a kind of continuation of the book of Job, of, of how, Lord, it, that suffering and affliction are part of the human condition, and, Lord, it's, it's something that we can't avoid, but we can use as an opportunity to help us rely on you and to help us know you and to help give purpose for our suffering and our affliction. But, Lord, when that those struggles come, the fears, the depression, the anxiety, when they begin to encroach upon us. Help us to know we are not alone, that we have you who have walked our path, walked in our skin and our shoes, and we also have each other that we can link together and in that find that healing, Lord, as we walk with you in the midst of and through the suffering. We point ourselves to a better day, Lord, because we know that you're the only thing that lasts forever. Our sufferings won't, but you will. Father, we thank you that we can be found in you. Lord, as we commit ourselves to you, as we believe in you and trust in you. As we close this morning, I just want us to give us a minute of silence. And I just this is a good time to do an oil check in your engine, your spiritual engine. I ask you these questions. Do you believe? Do you believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? Because if not, that's the first step. Do you believe? And if not, ask yourself, why don't I believe? Is it because of some existential question, of some intellectual difficulty? Or is it because you don't believe in the church that you've seen too much pain and wrong and certainly there are lots of things that have happened? But second check would be, Lord, is there anything, broken relationships, that you want to heal and do something about. And finally, Lord, is there anything right now, any way in which I need to trust you? In a minute, if there's things that you know, I'll just let give a minute of silence for, for you to just think about that. In a minute, I'll just ask anybody that wants to be prayed for for those things, just slip up your hand for a minute. We're going to spend, before we close in song, we're just going to spend a minute praying for those things. So. Let's take a minute of silence.
there's something on your heart or mind that you'd like us right now and just lift up before the Lord just as an act of faith and not going to embarrass you or call you out. Just slip up your hand and say, Lord, there's something I need from you right now or just some way. Okay, let's bring those things before the Lord. You can put your hands down. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. You see those hands. You see the people who are saying, yes, Lord, I need this. Lord, would you please become for them, Lord, all sufficiency. The book of Second Corinthians is about that you're sufficient for the day, for the affliction, for the suffering, for the struggle, and that you're enough. Lord, walk in those needs with them. God of all comfort, we thank you that you make purpose in the pain. You don't leave us, Father, or forsake us. You walk with us through all of this in skin like ours, so you understand. Forever you're faithful to us, Lord God. Amen.